0: My scripture reading can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 610. I'll be reading Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 26. Isaiah 49, 14 through 26. Let us give attention to the reading of God's word. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her, of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around you and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament you shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you'll be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and your queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, that those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives, captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall, d- shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is God's Word.
1: Do keep your Bibles open there at uh, Isaiah 49. I'm so glad the Bible is realistic in its view of the way we believers feel from time to time. It does not project a form of piety that ignores or suppresses the very real emotions and questions that often afflict the life of faith. Sometimes we come to church with mixed emotions, with confused thinking, with crushing questions. We believe in God and yet the inequalities and iniquities of life and the inequities of which people face leave us with big questions. We believe in God but we wonder at the fact that trouble seems to follow us wherever we go. We, we believe in God yet we look at the state of God's world and the state of God's church and we wonder why it is that if God rules, He can't rule in a bit of a tidier way than He does. And we find ourselves beset by questioning. This passage begins with a question. It's a question that reflects the thinking of a particular group of people. You'll notice it begins with the intervention, but Zion said. Now, I need to remind you that by this point in the book of Isaiah, whenever the word Zion is used, it's no longer being used simply of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which was Mount Zion, nor is it being used as just another way of talking about Jerusalem. Zion by this stage in the book of Isaiah has begun to take on the shape and form of a kind of description of the believing people of God, the remnant within Israel that believed God, that actually believed God's promises. We we might call them the Israel within Israel or the church within the church. Visible Israel, corporate Israel, has been in rebellion against God and Isaiah has said that they will be deported, their city will be devastated, the people will be deported to Babylon and they will stay there. That's the location of Isaiah the prophet at the time of writing. He's told them this. This is what is going to happen. Within the nation, within corporate Israel, there are believers who've listened to Isaiah preach. And Isaiah has been very successful in reaching their consciences. Their consciences have been gripped by the Word of God and they have felt slain by that Word. As they've contemplated what is coming, the Babylonians rising up, coming and devastating their city and deporting their people is the kind of ultimate expression of the judgment of God upon an ungodly people And a people who have been in idolatry as well as worshiping the living God have mingled their worship of the living God with their following the ways of the nations round about. In Christian parlance, we might speak about the worldly church. A worldly church that seeks to still profess the name of the one God who made the universe while at one and the same time following the notions, the values, the ideas, the mindset the world around Isaiah has been speaking to them and he's been speaking not only words of condemnation but words of reassurance he has been in this chapter in the early part of this chapter recording the voice of the servant of the Lord who is to come the servant who is given a mission by God in the early part of this chapter He is given a name by God. He is an individual, but he's going to represent Israel. He is the true and faithful Israel. He will do what Israel did not do. He will keep the Word of God. He will be obedient to the Word of God. And above all, he will fulfill the mission of Israel. It is his job, we're told, to bring back Jacob to God, that Israel might be gathered to him. He will be a light to the nations, verse 6. And the salvation of God will reach through him the ends of the earth. That was the message that Isaiah has just delivered. And the effect of that message, verse 13, is to prompt inanimate nature to jump on its feet, as it were, and to sing the praise of God. Sing for joy, O heavens. And exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? Because the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Using that word of comfort that was preached by the Lord as he comes in Isaiah 40. The good news message that their iniquities have been pardoned. What an amazing message that is. And you would think that kind of message of ultimate victory for the people of God, ultimate pardon for an unrighteous people of God, and the action of God on their behalf, you would think that that would have a positive effect. But apparently, by the time we get to verse 14, we're hearing that there are those among the believing people whose who are having a different experience. Their complaint is echoed here. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Corporately, Zion is under the judgment of God. And among corporate Zion, there is the Zion of God, the people of God. This word has become the code word. For the believing people of God. No longer is it tied to Jerusalem, it points to another Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above, that is free where God reigns and where God lives and where God is intensely present. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. And how this affects us today is this, that there is within the corporate church in the world, there is a believing church. Within the corporate Israel that is the church of God today on the face of the earth, there is a believing remnant of people who actually believe what they profess when they recite their creed. And we have come, as we saw earlier, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where our address is now. That's where we belong now. That's where our allegiance lies. Now we belong to that heavenly city Savior, if of Zion's city, I through grace, a member, am right now. And that's what you are if you're a believer. Our citizenship is in heaven, says the Apostle Paul. And yet it is possible that you know all of that, and you believe all of that, and you believe the Word of God, but that you find yourself identifying with this cry of these people this morning in verse 14, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. What is the reason? Well, the reason is that they're overwhelmed by the sin that is going to lead to the devastation that is to come. And as the prophet preaches, he preaches to the people he's speaking to there to encourage them, but he knows that others will read his sermons and they will hear these words that we are reading this morning when they're in the midst of the falling masonry and the invading army and the deported people of that future day and he knows how they will feel then they will feel this is the final sign God has written us out of the story and there are times as we look in the world today brothers and sisters as we look at the state of the church In the United States of America. As we look at the state of the church. Which is so much worse in Europe. Or the state of the church in the Middle East and in Turkey. Where once it was strong and now is weak. We can be overwhelmed by the state of the church. And we can cry out within our hearts. If not out with our voices. The Lord has forgotten us. The Lord has forsaken us. Here is God speaking to a people. Who are overwhelmed by the state of the world and the state of the church. Can a woman, verse 15, forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Here you see the Lord is addressing those feelings. He's addressing those feelings of forsakenness and saying that they are both un. Not unnecessary and they are irrational. And he underlines his personal commitment to his personal attachment to his personal affection for his own people. And he's saying to us here that his affection runs deeper than even the strongest of human bonds that you can imagine. Do you know when the Bible wants to talk about human love? It very often uses the image of a woman's love because the Bible recognizes that a woman's love is far more unconditional than a man's love. If you want evidence for that, you look in the New Testament, and when we're talking about husbands and wives, which one has to be told to love his spouse? Okay, why does he have to be told? Well, women, you will answer, it's because he has to be told everything, <laughs> again and again and again. Well, that, that's true. But he needs to be told because there is something self-contained about a man. He is self-sufficient. He can get on on his own, of course, as long as, I mean, he gets married for the little perks of the job. But, but apart from that, he is able to go on his own sweet way. That's why he comes home from work and he sits and he doesn't talk. Why, you have to pry stuff out of him. So the Bible looks at the woman and says, A woman by nature is normally far more unconditional and demonstrative in her love. And a mother particularly has great love and affection for her children. But I want you to notice that in this text it says it's possible even for a mother's love to fail. Even a mother's watch care to be inadequate. When I was three years of age, I disappeared. We lived out in the countryside. And I disappeared. You could go out and look over the fields and see if there was anybody there. And I wasn't there. My dear mother had to hunt high and low. And she, she went the two and a half miles into the town. And went over the places that, that we were used to going, looking for me. And as she was walking home, the tears streaming from her eyes, not knowing where to look next, a lady called her over, a friend called her over and said, do you know that Liam is playing in the backyard? He's been there for ages, just out there playing. I thought you were on your way here. There he is. Very ingenious boy, I have to say. (laughs) Getting all that way on his own at three years of age. But... Anyway, I don't know why I told you that story, except to underline that even the best of mothers, and mine was the best, next to my wife, of course, but she was the best. Uh, even the best of mothers are not successful in caring for their children. God makes the contrast here. He says this, he does not say, I am a mother. We cannot talk about mother God. Jesus doesn't let us do that. What he says is this. You take the very best of human love. You take the very highest expression of human love. And my love is infinitely above and beyond even that. Infinitely above and beyond even that. No wonder the psalmist could say in Psalm 27, My father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. His love goes beyond anything we can imagine. You take the best of love, the highest, noblest of human love. You multiply it by infinity and eternity. And you're even not even beginning to see the love of God for His people. Look at verse 16. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He's talking to Zion, the people of God. They were thinking of their city in terms of having physical walls and so on. But those walls were going to collapse and fall. God is saying to them, look, the heavenly Zion to which you really belong... The heavenly community to which you really belong has walls of security around you. And those walls have never, ever fallen. They will never fall. Those things I put in place for the eternal security and safety of my people will never be invaded, will never collapse. Your walls are ever before me. And you yourselves, personally, as my people, your name is engraved on my hand. I'm never going to forget it. It's like the boy taking down the girl's number, only better. He will never, it will never be erased. You know those great hymns that capture this idea. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on my behalf Appears before the throne my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. My name from the palm of those hands. Eternity will not erase. Engraved on his heart it remains. In marks of indelible grace. Brothers and sisters, God addresses our fears, even our guilty fears, because that's what these were, guilty fears. He addresses these and reminds us of his absolute and eternal love for you. But he also challenges our unbelief. He doesn't just say it's okay. But he challenges our unbelief. We have no real reason for unbelief. Look at verses 17 to 23. A number of things were going to happen. Some I've already mentioned. Uh, Jerusalem's walls would fall. The people would be exiled. But God has been making these promises that through the ser- the servant who is to come, He will gather, raise up the tribes of Jacob. He will bring back the preserved of Israel. He will be made as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's verse 6. So here's the vision that Isaiah has been painting. He's been doing it right from the very beginning of his book, way back in chapter 2. Way back in chapter 2, he sees the heavenly Zion raised up above the whole earth, and he sees people coming from all over the world pouring into Zion and asking the way of salvation, asking how they may worship the Lord God. What a great vision. And he says, uh, he reminds them here in verse 17 that this is going to happen. The builders are making haste. The destroyers and those who laid you waste will go away from you. In other words, the Zion is going to be built. The, the city of God is going to grow. The people of God are going to get more multi, multitudinous and, and glorious in their number. The church will grow. Zion will gather her children around her like a bride. Verse 18, her children will be the ornaments of her bridal gown, the people of God as they come to be part of this great assembly, like the bride of Christ, the bride of God, getting ready for that great day. In fact, the children of your bereavement, the people you thought you'd lost, the people from those 10 tribes that will disappear to the north of Judah. They'll vanish from the face of the earth and from history. But among those ten tribes, there will be God's elect. There will be a remnant of believers. They will be called. They will be gathered. The remnant of Israel will be gathered out of all the nations of the world. So the point of verse 20. The children of your bereavement, the people you thought you lost... The people you thought you'd never see again, the people you thought you would never see gathering with you in the city of God, they will be there. In fact, they'll be whispering in your ear. Suddenly you're going along the road and you hear a voice you recognize whispering in your ear saying, you know, we're going to have to build a bigger city here. We're going to have to make more space. It's too narrow. Make room for me to dwell. And then you will say in your heart as you turn around and you see all these people Multitudes of people, people from Judea and Israel, northern Israel, people from the ends of the earth. And there they are crowding and they look as if they know you and they're part of your family and they're coming towards you. And here God says through his prophet to these people, you'll look and you'll say, where did these come from? You know, sometimes my wife said this twice to me. She told me she was pregnant. She said, I have no idea where it came from. She was lying. She did perfectly well. But here's this person. this am going to into real trouble today. Um, uh, I'm not responsible for anything I say in public. Here are, here are these people. Look at verse 21. You will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. Who has brought these up? I was left alone. Where have these come from? You see the picture? It's a really vivid picture, isn't it? Surrounded by the family as they've been gathered. Gentiles as well as the lost of Israel and Jewish believers gather together. She can't believe it. She's blinking The way the tears. She, she thinks she's dreaming. Zion thinks she's dreaming. God is saying to Zion, you'll see the fruit. All that I have promised, you will see it. Look at verse 22. I will lift up my hand to the nations, and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in your bosom, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. I'll raise up a signal back in chapter 11. The Messiah was the signal. Jesus refers back to this image when he says, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, shall draw all men, all kinds of men and women to myself. Here is the raising up on the cross of the Messiah, and by the preaching of the cross, He is drawing men, women, boys, and girls from every part of this planet to Himself. And you can see this great picture there in verse 22 as people stream to the signal that God is raised. Here are here are the men gathering, the, 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 the mothers gathering their sons in their bosom and carrying them as they make their way. Here are the dads with their daughters on their shoulders streaming towards Zion, the city of God, as we bring ourselves and our families on the journey to the holy city, to the, to the city of Zion, the place of God. And there they come. In their streaming multitudes. Look at verse 23. Kings shall be your foster fathers. Queens. Your nursing mothers. The great people of the earth. They will come. Many great people of the earth will come. And they'll bow down. They'll bow down to you. Because you've shown them the way of salvation. You've stood as a light to the nations. You've been, you've been a, a torch pointing in the direction of the Messiah. You've been there. That's what you've been doing faithfully over these years. A light in the midst of the darkness. And these great people of the world who thought they had it all together have come to their senses, realized their need of salvation. And where have they gone? They've gone to the despised and the low and the weak of this world. They've gone to them and said, Sir, would you show me Jesus? This is the great picture that Isaiah paints here. He wants you to be encouraged by this. This is what's going to come in the future. He's addressing our unbelief and he's saying, why can't you believe this? This is what God will do. And when God does that, then you will know, verse 23, then you will know that I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I am the Lord. I am that I am. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Here he is, the covenant keeping, covenant making, covenant regarding God and those who wait for him. He says that those who wait for Him will never be disgraced or ashamed. You see, it it is in the nature of who God is and what God is to those who trust Him that means He will never, ever leave us to be disgraced. Whatever your circumstances that leave you feeling let down today, when people are letting you down, when life has let you down, When things have happened and you don't understand why they have happened, and you feel that God has forgotten you or abandoned you or betrayed you in some way, if you are a believer, if you're not a believer, these questions never bother you, because uh, if life is hard, your response, if you're not a Christian, people hurt you, circumstances don't go your way, well, that's too bad. It's all random. Life is driven by chance. Stop complaining because there's no one to complain about or to complain to. Yeah, the reality is even if you're not a Christian, you know perfectly well, you don't stop complaining. You ask why there is evil in the world, you ask why it is that people never learn their lessons. You wonder why it is that the world is the way it's going. Why do you wonder that? If everything is random and chance and there is no superior being, there's no one who made the world, there's no one to hold responsible except ourselves. Why do you ask those questions? You realize how irrational that is? But you see built into your very being there is this awareness that you were made, that you are a made thing and that this is a made place was made by the maker and that somehow or other whatever is happening here has some connection to him and the revelation of the Bible is that the things that have gone wrong in the world have gone wrong with the world because things have gone wrong in our hearts out of our hearts comes every form of evil and we need saved from ourselves and God promises to do that he promises to act for those who wait for Him. In other words, God has His own timetable. God will do for us and with us something so unimaginably great, beyond our wildest dreams, above all that we can ever ask or think, in His own time. This is the problem we face, isn't it, as believers? In... uh, in Romans chapter 8, it says that all of creation is groaning for the day when the sons of God, the children of God, will be revealed. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, It does not yet appear what we shall be. In other words, people look at us and they. Somebody came in this morning who's not a Christian, they looked at you, Lot. They would say, well, some are normal, some are not, a lot are not. Uh, Some are well-dressed, others could do with some help. Uh, And and they would look at us, and and basically they would be unimpressed generally. They would not be exceptionally impressed. The reality is, you see, who you are as a child of God at this moment is not apparent to them. You're going to grow old. You're going to die unless Jesus returns. So, what about this eternal life we have? Where is it? It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this, says John. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's where we're headed, that's our destiny. And that's our destination. The city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Zion. Zion whose walls have never been overcome by any enemy. Which is why, you see, at the end of chapter 49, we're told that God is going to bring all his enemies down. He's going to bring them all down in the end. And demonstrate before the watching world that He alone is the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God addresses our unbelief and urges us to believe in Him. And then, thirdly, God feeds the faith of God's people. He feeds His people's faith. Verses 24, 25, 25. You see, some of these people were going to have a question here about what Isaiah had predicted. He predicted not only the rise of Babylon and its ultimate success, but he had predicted that this little startup operation to the east of Babylon, operating out of an old shed in the outskirts of Philadelphia, this startup operation, which was... Nothing in Isaiah's day was going to grow very big, very powerful, very strong, and would one day overwhelm and destroy the Babylonian Empire. The Persians, don't trust the Persians, but the Persians were going to rise up and they were going to be very strong, led by, and Isaiah tells the people, the guy's name, Cyrus, led by Cyrus. Cyrus and the Persians were going to grow bigger and bigger. They were going to come, and they were going to overwhelm Babylon and destroy it. And then Isaiah had said that the king of Babylon, Cyrus, was going to upsticks and let all these people go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and their temple and so on. And there were people among Isaiah's congregation and People who would read Isaiah's work. They're thinking to themselves. That never happens. It it just never ever happens. That a great power. Gives away its wealth. And its strength. Well. No comparisons. To do the present. But normally great powers do not give away. Their you know, their, their strength and their wealth and their power and so forth and their weaponry and so on. And these people were thinking this principle to themselves and they were thinking, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of tyrants be rescued? Is it possible that what Isaiah has predicted will come true? And Isaiah says, yes, of course it is. This says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty can be taken, the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. He's feeding the faith of the people. He's feeding the faith of the people. And then lastly, beginning of chapter 50, he pleads for his people's trust. They felt abandoned by God. God says, wait a minute, you feel abandoned by me? It's like you have a marriage relationship with me. So if you feel abandoned, I want you to prove it. Where is the certificate of the divorce? Where have I ever signed anything saying that I am giving up on my believing people? Where is there any evidence that I would ever do that? Don't you see how foolish that is? I'm appealing to you. Believe me. Trust me. Take me at my word. Lean all your weight upon me. And find in me your all in all. One of the old hymns puts it like this. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity, love and power. He is able. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. This morning, our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, has come, of course. And here in these opening words of chapter 50, the Lord says, you know, I've been here. I'm... Been standing here. I've been calling you. I've been there, and nobody's taken my hand. No one's heard my voice. No one's listened to me. No one's turned to me. No one's trusted in me. He's saying to his people, "Now is the time to take my hand. Now is the time to trust in me. Now is the time to take me at my word." That's God's word to you this morning. It's His word to my heart and yours this morning. It is time to trust. The Lord, He has not divorced us. However bad things get, however much the church in America may collapse, as it has collapsed in Europe, as it collapsed in Turkey, as it collapsed in the Middle East. Think about the ways in which God is building His church today. When I was a boy in my teens, I went along to a prayer meeting in Glasgow. And that prayer meeting in Glasgow was a Southeast Asian prayer meeting. And at that prayer meeting, we heard about the, the fledgling work that was being done in countries in the Far East, outside of China. The missionaries who began in China had moved out to these other countries. And at that prayer meeting, we prayed regularly that God would work a miracle in China. I remember getting a book by a man called Watchman Knees. Theology wasn't perfect, but he was a very godly man. And I learned a lot from that little book called Sit, Walk, Stand. And I remember reading Watchman Nee's little book and being amazed by the fact that he was a Chinese believer. And you think of what's happened in these last years. God is doing the very thing the servant was supposed to do. He is being the light to the nations. He is calling the nations to himself. Look around you in this room and see for yourself. God is drawing people from the nations to himself. And he's giving us these promises that we've looked at today. That he will never forget us. That he will build his church. That he will give the church victory over the world. And that he will rescue us from every Evil power. Wherever you are in your life, one of those promises is for you. Let's pray together. And I want to pray this morning as we close the sermon from using words of Martin Luther. Let's pray. Our God, may Christ, our dear God and the bishop of our souls, which he has bought with his own precious blood, sustain this little flock by the might of his own word, that it may increase and grow in grace and knowledge and faith in him. May he comfort and strengthen it, that it may be firm and steadfast against all the crafts and assaults of Satan and this wicked world. And may he hear its hearty groaning and anxious waiting and longing for the joyful day of his glorious and blessed coming and appearing. May there be an end of this murderous pricking and biting of the heel of horrible poisonous serpents from hell. And may there come finally the revelation of the glorious liberty and blessedness of the children of God for which they wait and hope with patience, to which all those who love the appearing of Christ our life will say from the heart, Amen and Amen.